0: At our home group uh, this past Wednesday night, in the flow of discussion, it became very obvious to me that I was uh, I was among a group of people who want to become very serious in their pursuit of Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives. Our new home group has an age range of people from their twenties into their sixties, and we all seem to want the same thing. We all. We all want to be sure that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives. And our, our time of faith in that group ranges from some of us who have believed in Jesus for decades, all the way to one young man who gave his life to Jesus Christ here last Sunday. And uh, it's such a privilege to be in a group with that kind of variety and passion, and uh, it's been amazing. By the way, if you're looking for a new, for a home group to join, and if you're interested in a Bible study focus, ours is a Bible study focus. Different home groups in our church have different points of focus. Uh, ours is committed to a Bible study and understanding the scriptures, discussion of the scriptures. Uh, then you're more than welcome to visit us in, in our home. Karen and I are hosting it on our home on the first and third Wednesdays of each month. You're welcome to come if this one thing is true. You have been here at this vineyard for a year or less. We started this home group out of our last Vineyard 101, and we've done this before of just... Inviting people who are newer to the church who haven't found the courage to go to one of your living rooms can't say that I don't understand that anxiety and just invite them to come and in, into ours and start a new one. And so, this is a home group that we have seated with a couple of church members to help us to have a foundation, but is open then to those of you who are newer to the church and haven't found a way into a home group yet, you're more than welcome to come and be a part of us. And if you're sitting there wondering, Tom, are, are you saying that if I come to your home group and you know I've been here longer than that, you're going to turn me away? And the answer is, you better believe it. <laughs> so don't don't even try me on that one, Okay. There are a lot of good home groups in this church, a lot of good life groups, and um, I strongly encourage you to be involved in one of them. So anyway, while we were studying the book of Philippians in our third meeting last Wednesday, we were noticing a couple of things. We were noticing the Apostle Paul's amazing uh, faith-filled response to his imprisonment. He was imprisoned for his faith. And he was telling the Philippians, this is great! I'm in prison! Now I can preach to the guards! And we were noticing his response to that, but we were also noticing how he was telling the Philippian believers how fortunate they were, that they were privileged to be able to share in the sufferings of Christ. That they too would be able to suffer for the name of Jesus. And as we looked at that, there was a shared concern in our group that, uh, that so much of, the, of American Christianity that is offered in public these days and in the media seems to be soft and self-serving. And without mentioning any names, my wife Karen shared that she always found it difficult to embrace any of the teachings of the something good is going to happen to you approach to the gospel. And while God is good, yes, and while going to heaven after this is good, yes, it's true, all that is good, that making ourselves the center of the gospel somehow didn't square up with her understanding of it. And so in stark contrast to the presentation of the gospel in America that promises to show you how to get a comfortable and prosperous life here on earth, I'd like to continue to bring you the central truth of the gospel, that in order to be assured of an amazing eternal life in heaven, we must fully die to the life that we have here. That is central to the gospel of Jesus. And I I want to be sure to state again that after 40 years of studying the scriptures from cover to cover, after 40 years of following hard after Jesus... I've come to the conclusion that God's ultimate purpose is to kill us. His ultimate purpose is to not to make you comfortable, is to not to make you financially prosperous, but to kill you. And so that in dying, you then give him the raw material to raise you to new life. So the purpose of this killing us is so that he can raise us to new life and in doing so can restore us to our intended place in the created order as reflective surfaces of the glory of God. And as I told you last week, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about us. It's about God the reason that you're intrigued with the gospel, the reason you are drawn to Jesus, is because you know you have an internal need to know God that's built in, and if you will let yourself be truthful before God, you will understand that you have a need to become a reflective surface of the glory of God. That that is your purpose in the universe, is to reflect His glory. So, We walk out the Christian faith, not in comfort, but in hardship. Have you been reading the Bible, anyone? Have you noticed what's happening in other parts of the world, anyone? Where Christians live, not in comfort, as we do in America, but in hardship. And the purpose of hardship in life is to do what? It is to polish us. It is to polish us so that we become reflective surfaces of the glory of God because we come dull. And when we come to Christ and when we die to ourselves, then he begins to polish us. He doesn't polish us in comfort. He polishes us in hardship. He polishes us in abrasion. I don't know too much about rock tumbling but i know you put these ordinary rocks into a tumbler and in some space of time as they're tumbled about they become quite brilliant don't they and i i'm assuming tell me if i'm right there's some kind of an abrasive process going on in there as it tumbles about not against cotton they're not surrounded by a pillow Or they would come out what? The same as they went in. But they're surrounded by some kind of an abrasive material that as the edges hit the abrasion, they're polished. The purpose of our hardship, why hardship is a part of the life of the Christian is because it's part of the sanctifying process of God to polish us. Because we come dull. You know, I think maybe the dullest person you will ever meet in heaven may be the thief on the cross. He hung on the cross. He laid claim to the truth of the death of Jesus. Did he not? The blood of Jesus. And Jesus promised him, Today you will be with me in paradise. But what a tragedy that he missed. The hardship. He's going as he was. What a tragedy! First Peter chapter one verses three through nine say this: "Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah? In his great mercy, He has given us a new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter said, in this you greatly rejoice. Catch this. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, he said, So that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. And catch this, ready? May result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He said, praise God that you are counted worthy to participate in the hardships of the faith. Because these have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. And may result in glory to God. We're being polished. You know, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And we've talked recently about how mysterious it is that the gospel is exclusive, and how whether we like it or not, it's still what Jesus said. And so it's true. And so I want you to think for a minute about what Jesus said I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, beyond the fact of the exclusivity of the gospel, beyond the fact that Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension provided the mechanism of our redemption and our restoration to God, he said, I'm the way. I'm the way. I'm the way to heaven. So that if you want to be certain of your eternal life, you need to be on the way. You need to be following Him. It's not simply about checking off the box of a statement of faith, of belief, but it's to be on the way, to be following Him. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. You know that? And He said, I'm the way the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And Jesus did everything that needed to be done on the cross for us, but he's the way. So it's not just about believing him as Savior, but it's about following him as Lord. Which brings us back to the passage from last week that was so compelling in in so many ways. When Jesus said to his disciples... If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. I gave you the context of that passage last week, so I'll assume that information with you. The summary of what Jesus said, deny Himself, take up His cross, and follow Me, can be said in this sequential progression. Deny, die, and follow. This is the central truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Deny ourselves. Let's not make it about us. It's about God. We'll never get there if we keep making it about ourselves. It's about God. And the good news is you have a stirring to know and praise God inside of you. You have a stirring. You're created with that. There's an emptiness inside of you because of original sin. What Blaise Pascal called a God-shaped void. Only God will fit. How many of you have tried to fill it with so many other things? Anybody? You tried to fill it with philosophy. You tried to fill it with religion. You tried to fill it with drugs. You tried to fill it with relationships. You tried to fill it with experiences. And it was still empty. Because only God fits the space. And so you have that inside of you. How do you access that? You deny yourself. It's a little counterintuitive, isn't it? You don't make it about you and your God-shaped void. You make it about Him and His desire to fill that God-shaped void. And you become a vessel of His glory then. And you die. You're crucified with Christ. And then you can follow. Last week, as the Holy Spirit moved in response to that message that I brought praise God, Uh, I think it left us with a lot of theoretical commitment. There was a stirring among you, and there was a great response among you, both here and there. And uh, I think what it left you with was a sense of uh, theoretical commitment, saying, okay, I sense a stirring, this is real, I want to make a commitment But two questions immediately arise from a time like that. And the first one is, well, what do I do? What do I do now? Okay, great, I'm ready. Tell me what to do. What actions does this stirring effectively translate into? And uh, we take the theoretical commitment into concrete actions. And I want to tell you this. If you are not doing something differently, or truly ready to do something differently than before last week's message, then the stirring was a dangerous trick. Because if you're just coming here on Sundays for the stirring, and nothing is changing after you leave this parking lot, then you are being lulled in to a religious trick. If nothing is different this week than it was last week, and, or, If you haven't come this week saying, Okay, tell me what to do. What do the scriptures say? Then you're in a dangerous place. Don't ever be satisfied with the stirring because that's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel isn't to give us Jesus juice. The point of the gospel is to change us and transform us for his glory. So what do I do? And the second question that should be on your mind is, okay, I'm with you, Tom. Deny, die, follow. How would I know when I'm getting this right? I mean, do I get a report card from heaven? Is there a website I can log on to? And How do I know when I'm getting this right? I sought the Lord on this matter in your behalf, and I have developed a list of seven actionable qualities of a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. Seven actionable qualities of a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. And before I begin with them, I I want you to know that these are meant as a comprehensive, not passage-specific rendering. I'm a pastor who likes to preach from a passage. Boom. Boom. Let's get the context, let's see what it says, let's let the Holy Spirit speak to us in it. I don't like to be preaching from the whole Bible on one point, you know? You hear what I'm saying? This, however, this list, the seven, do not all come from one space. And so it's a comprehensive rendering. I have biblical foundation for, of course, everything, but I just want to tell you it's a little bit different than what I normally do. Second, what I'm about to share or begin sharing with you is this is meant as an objective standard by which we can evaluate ourselves. I mean, we need something outside of ourselves to which we can compare ourselves, right? We need something standing there as a righteous standard that we can hold ourselves up to and go, well, there we go. That's how I mean this. And the third thing before I begin working on the list is this is meant as a perfect standard compared to which we will always find room to do better. That unless you are Dennis Drummond, you are not perfect yet. Right, Sally? Thanks a lot, <laughs> Thanks a lot she said. In reality, none of us are perfect, not a single one of us. Certainly not me. None of us claim to be perfect. And so when you see these seven, they are meant as a standard to which you can compare your life, but with the knowledge that every time you compare your life to this standard, you will go, "Oh, there we go. There's something that it doesn't measure up." And I think that's a good thing. I think that's really a good thing. Um, I have relative strengths and weaknesses in each of these seven qualities. And I want you to know that as I give this teaching, uh, if you feel convicted by this teaching, I am not judging you. I I am definitely not judging you. But I hope you know that a true rendering of the Scriptures will always bring to some level of conviction. Because none of us are perfect. So if you are sitting in in a church setting time after time after time, and there's never any conviction, and you are earnestly seeking it, you need to wonder, is is the truth being rendered? And so, it's not me judging you, it's the Scripture that is judging you. And that's what I want. I want the Scripture to judge judge my life. And before I begin populating this list for you, let me assure you that I have no delusions about actually having time to explain all of them to you today. Okay? Okay? No matter how concise and precise I might like to be, seven ain't going to happen. I'm hoping to get through two. Okay? And we will continue the list as we need to. Actionable qualities of a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. The first is prayer. This is an actionable quality. By that I mean it's, it's a quality of your life upon which, through your own intention you can take action. It's not theoretical. It's a quality. These seven things I want to give you, I don't want to say these are the things you must do to be a Christian. I'm saying these are the things I believe that following Jesus Christ as your Savior, these are the things that characterize you, that give you opportunity to act. That's how I mean that. It's an important distinction. To be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ means to be a person of disciplined prayer. And there really are no exceptions to this, people. There are no exceptions. Uh, I I have to admit, though, that I have to be careful here because of this one thing. We all have different spiritual gifts. True? That's how the Bible teaches it. One of those gifts is intercession, intercession. And these are things that God just puts on board us, according to the scriptures, as he sees fit. By his grace, I have the gift of intercession. So, prayer for me is like, well, yeah, right? By God's grace and his decision, I do not have the gift of evangelism. And so, while I may be very natural and strong in prayer, I have to work at evangelism. Dennis, by contrast here, makes me sick because he has both. So, the good news is, Sally, that Jesus said, to whom much has been given, much will be required. (laughs) So, some of us are off the hook by comparison, right? My point is this, is that Every one of you has a gift mix according to the will of God, and you are more naturally inclined to be strong according to your gifting. And so I want to, when I talk about prayer, I want to I walk with a sensitivity to that, because it does come very naturally to me to do that, and it always has. But, at the end of the day, in terms of prayer as an actionable quality in the life of a genuine disciple, there really, there really can be no exceptions. There can be no exceptions for three reasons. First of all, Jesus prayed as example, did he not? I mean, Jesus is often caught retreating, leaving the fray, leaving the opportunity even to pray. In Mark chapter 1, where you know Jesus is healing all these people and stuff, and all this cool stuff's going on, and his disciples come and say, say Lord, Lord... We we have a great opportunity here. It says, here was Jesus' response to the opportunity. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So Jesus was so committed to prayer that by example, as someone who's following Jesus, there can be no exceptions. Why was Jesus committed to prayer? Well, John 5, 19, Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So Jesus Christ, while here on earth, Philippians chapter 2 teaches us that he laid down his right to be God and functioned among us as a man. And so his example is one for us to follow. But not only that, but in order for Jesus, while he was on earth, having laid down his right to be God, the divine kenosis passage of Philippians chapter 2, that when he did that, that he needed to... Confer with the Father as we do in order to know what to do. And so by example, Jesus says there can be no exceptions. Second, Jesus clearly taught his disciples and ultimately us to pray. Yes? Have you been reading the Bible thing? He taught his disciples freely in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, and when you pray, go into the closet." He said, Don't pray like the hypocrites. He said, Go into the closet in secret. And your father who sees you praying in secret will reward you openly. When you pray, he said, not if you pray. He taught his disciples to pray. He said, I'll tell you what, whatever you two of you can come together and agree on in my name, conditioned by my name and my will, he calls us to pray. He calls us again and again and again to pray. And I think the third reason that there can be no exceptions to a life of prayer for anybody calling themselves a Christian is because if you are not praying, then you can't possibly be following him. Hello? How do you know which way you're going if you're not talking with him? If you don't have a disciplined, committed life of prayer, how can you possibly say you're following Him? Well, how do we pray? Let me show you how to pray. Acts chapter 4 in your Bibles. Turn over a few pages. I want to show you how we should be praying as believers today. In Acts chapter 4, there is the account of Peter and John... Who were called before the Sanhedrin, which were the religious the Jewish council of seventy they they had authority to imprison they had authority to uh, to to execute if they could get the approval of the Roman government, and uh, they seized verse three Peter and John and um, because they were preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, and they were next day it says there was night, and so they threw him in jail and Next day, they brought him before the leaders who said, you need to stop talking about this. And their answer was, rulers of Israel, you decide. Is it right for us to obey men or to obey God? He said, but we can't help but speaking of the things we've seen and heard, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other way. So they said, we're going to do this. And in doing that, they, uh, they warned them again and sent them away. And then, verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to the disciples and the believers, the fledgling church there, and they began to pray. And in their prayer, down in verse 25, they said, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord. And against his anointed one. And they go on with that for a little while. And then in verse 29, their prayer becomes evident. They say, now Lord, consider their threats. In other words, we are under threat of life. Now consider their threats and look what they ask for next. Did they ask for safety? Did they ask for protection? Did they ask for the government to change its mind so that they would no longer be under threat? Here's what they asked for. Consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak, speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now the reason they were picked up for this by the Sanhedrin was for healing a guy. And they said, what we need, Lord, is more. What we need more, it, Lord, is more boldness. That's what we need in the face of threat. In the face of persecution, what we need, Lord, is more boldness. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. How do we pray? What are we praying for? Disciples? Are we living under threat? You better believe it. The death toll in Paris is now 130. Did you know there was a terrorist attack in Beirut? the day before, that was completely overshadowed by what happened in the news sources. 43 people were killed in bombings in Beirut by these militant, Islam, militant, militant Muslims. And, uh, and then this week in Mali, gunmen went in saying, Allah is great! And started indiscriminately firing, killing 21 people. Are we living under threat? Ladies and gentlemen, these people are a plane ride away. These people are one plane ride away. And we need to wake up. We need to wake up to do what? We need to wake up to pray, God, consider this threat and enable your servants to speak with great boldness. Because as we are quiet, we are inviting terrorism. As we are quiet in our faith, Well, it's what I believe, they can believe what they believe. You believe the truth, and it's time for you to stand up for the truth and begin declaring the truth in this country, because they are one plane ride away. We need to pray this prayer. Lord, consider their threats. Consider their threats. And in face of these threats, what, keep us safe? Sure, of course, pray for protection. Pray for the protection of your children as you pack them off to school. Of course. But the the guts of the prayer is that in the midst of this threat, Lord, enable your servants to stand up and stop apologizing for the gospel. Stop apologizing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And stand up and be Christians. And stretch out your hand, Lord. And perform signs and wonders among us 195 people died in those three attacks that's how we pray there's only one good reason not to pray and that's cuz you don't believe there's only one good reason not to be a person of prayer. It's because you don't believe. And if you believe, how can you not pray? If you believe that there is a God of the universe who loves you so much, so personally, that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross so that you can be restored. If you believe the truth of the scripture that says there's a Holy Spirit who wants to indwell you Empower you, engage you, to make you a branch on the vine of Christ. If you believe that, how can you not pray? You say, I don't know how to pray. Of course you do. How can you not open your eyes and say, Lord, what do you want to do today? How can you not pray? You don't have to go to a prayer meeting to pray. Pray. This is the first actionable quality of an authentic disciple. And there can be no exceptions. There can be no excuses. Some of you are saying, I... I I don't have time, Tom. I'm so busy. I'm going to tell you this morning how you can pray for an hour this week. You have 168 hours in the coming week just like everybody else. 168 hours coming up. If you pray for 8 minutes and 34 seconds a day, 7 days, you will pray for an hour this week. 8 minutes. Are you honest to God telling me that there is something that is so pressing in your life that you cannot set aside eight minutes of time and sit before the Father and say, What do you want to do today, Lord? You're not praying because you don't have time, you're not praying because you don't understand the value of it, you don't get it yet. And you're not praying because of another thing. You're not praying because you have not yet experienced the love of the Father. Because when you get that, you will be like these disciples. We can't help ourselves. How can we not? If you haven't been here yet, then I understand. Because you don't believe. But when you get here, when you get before the cross of Jesus Christ and understand this truth that God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when you get caught up personally in the flow of the love of God, you'll pray. You'll believe. You'll pray. When you give yourself as a living sacrifice in this cross, Romans chapter 12 says that we must present our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord, which is holy and acceptable to Him. Verse 2 says "says what? It says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world which is about you and your comfort. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. How is your mind renewed? God, what do you want to do today? Take every thought captive. Love me, Lord. Transform from the dull, non-reflective surface to reflective surfaces of the glory of God. There are people in this room right now, I'm sure, who need to get to this cross today. You need to get here. You need to get here. You need to be a part of this solution. You need to stop fooling around with this. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You need to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. You need to get beyond checking the I believe box. I believe in Jesus box. And you need to get to the place of saying, I want to follow you As Lord, here I am. And some of you are sitting there right now, and some of you may be even surprised by that notion inside of you. And you're saying, that's me, and if that's you, I want you to raise your hand. And hold it up. Three, hold it up, to keep it up. Four. Today. Today. The four of you who have your hands up. One, two, three, four. I'm going to pray for you here. I'm going to insist on this. When we are finished, I'm going to insist that the four of you come up here. Dennis and Sally will be right up here ready to just pray with you. Don't make this about just raising your hand. We're done with that. That day's gone here. It's gone. The world is changing so fast. It's got to be gone. It's got to be gone not only here but in every church. It's got to be gone. This day of easy believism, it's got to be gone. We've got to stand up and be counted. I want to pray for the four of you. Father in heaven, for those four who have raised their hand now in the name of Jesus, we acknowledge the, the moving of your spirit in their hearts. Father, some have come to you before and said, be my Savior. And I acknowledge that. And in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will renew that. And some are coming and saying, You are my Savior, now be my Lord. I want to follow you. And I acknowledge that, and I pray blessing upon blessing upon blessing in the four of them, that you would live inside of them, that your word would dwell in them, that life would change for them now, that they would understand that they are loved by you, that you're doing this, you're stirring in them because you love them. And you have purpose for them. And I pray now the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on them. May the power of the Lord come for them. And answer their heart in their prayer. Father, I pray now for the whole church. I pray that a move of your love would overcome this place so that we could stop praying out of obligation or duty. But we would pray because we love you and because we know you love us. I pray that you would ignite the fires of love in this place. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would connect with every heart, every every mind, that you would be persuasive in your pursuit of love for us today, that you would chase us down like a young man after a woman. You would chase us down and wrap your arms around us as sons and daughters and say, I love you. That you would chase us down as a father would go to rescue his child from the street, that you would chase us down and that you would grip us and you would hold us and you would love us. I pray for this, Father. I pray that every seeking heart would be overcome by your love today and that this love would be a compelling motivation to speak with you today, tomorrow, and every tomorrow that you privilege us to have. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you will come And God, that you will stretch out your hand and you will perform miraculous signs and wonders among us. I pray that you will heal our sick. I pray that you will set the prisoners free. I pray, God, that you would come and you would cancel every spiritual debt, every emotional debt, every relational debt, that you would come and you would pay it for us, Father God. I pray the power of the Lord just to come into this room now. Power of the Lord to come into this room now and and overwhelm us with your love in the name of Jesus. Church, would you stand with me? Dennis and Sally, would you come? Would you four who raised your hands, please come now. And Dennis and Sally, we'll, we'll just pray with you. Please come now. Would like to have some people of faith standing over on the sides here. Are you a person who believes that God would stretch out His hand and perform a miraculous and wonderful sign for somebody who needs it? Are you a person who needs a miraculous and wonderful sign in your life? You go to these people as we worship God. But I just ask for the love of the Father to embrace this place. Hallelujah.